Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move! Against Gil, the crowd on its feet. Allen for the win! To the Sneaker History Podcast. What up, what up? Welcome to a special edition of the Sneaker History Podcast. This is History Lessons, the Air Jordan 1. My name is Nick Engvall, and I'm here with my guys, Robbie Falke and Mike Guillory. What's going on, fellas? How you doing? Yo, I'm doing good. You know, ready to throw a little, little knowledge at the listeners. I'm doing great. I'm a, probably the biggest Jordan 1 fanboy of the three of us. So I'm definitely excited to get talking about the shoe. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk about it, too. I think we're all going to learn a little something kind of going back over the, the story of the Air Jordan 1. So that's it. I guess let's just jump right into it. Oh, yeah. I wanted to start out a little bit before the Jordan 1 just to kind of set the tone for what the shoe became. And obviously, you're listening to it now, you've got 35 plus years or whatever, 40 years that we're working on that the shoe's been around. So looking back, um, before Michael Jordan signed with Nike, he had always worn Adidas and it was pretty common knowledge that he wanted to play in Adidas. He was pretty vocal about that. And there was also like the technology side of the shoe where, you know, Mike, as you said, before we started recording something about converse and and this the way the fit of the converse didn't work for jordan i wanted you to touch on that a little bit yeah so you know he didn't want to sign with nike because he didn't like the the court feel of the sole he thought the soles were too thick so i you know shoes such as like you know the you know air forces uh they were just things like that just too too thick for him so at one point was there was reported that he would he wants to even play in chucks because he could have a better court feel. So Nike being the, uh, you know, savvy business people, they are like, we can't let this guy go unsigned. So basically they, they created a shoe for Michael Jordan um, to satisfy his need for court feel. So that's why you'll notice that on the Jordan one, if you look at that silhouette along with others, at that same time period, it'll have a thinner sole. And so Michael Jordan had better court feel for the way he liked to play, which also kind of attributes to why it's not that comfortable. Yeah, and that's super interesting. So I guess going back to the whole signing process of Michael Jordan, Nike Nike had opened the you know can of worms, so to speak, when it came to marketing. And Phil Knight, I think, was quoted as saying something along the lines of like, we're not in the business of selling shoes, we're in the entertainment business, which is spot on when you look, you know, look back now and you see what Michael Jordan was to the brand. 
But in 1984, they basically signed like a crazy deal to, you know, bring Michael Jordan to Nike as a sponsored athlete. And that included, you know, obviously working a specific shoe out for him, which, you know, we now we know became the whole Air Jordan line and the whole Air Jordan brand. But that original deal was 500,000 per year and stock options for MJ. And there was a stipulation that Nike could walk away if the sales didn't reach a total of $4 million by the end of the third year. And at that time, like $4 million in sales was bananas. Like that's so far beyond anything that had been done before. Looking, you know, looking back at it and seeing that number, it's like MJ's not getting paid anything. But obviously now we know how successful it's been. But one thing I think is really fascinating about those early years is that within the first uh, three, I think two, no, within the first two months of the Air Jordan 1 going on sale, Nike did over 70 million in sales in those two months. So that's like, you know, I, I, I can't even, I can't even comprehend what that would be like today, right? I don't think there's anyone that's even close to that in terms of, in terms of like that big of an impact. So obviously I think there's a lot of pieces to that, but one of the things that has kind of always been talked about that I guess it's, it's common knowledge if you're a sneaker person, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the airship and the Nike airship, which was a shoe that Michael wore, you know, in his first, you know, probably half season Robbie, do you want to talk a little bit about like that whole, I guess, marketing campaign for Nike? Yeah. Um, before, and it's kind of before touching on that, like the Jordan one as a whole started sneaker culture, like without Nike taking that kind of ludicrous asking, uh, I mean, ludicrous task of Jordan trying to sell those shoes by doing that, they started what we all enjoy now. So we wouldn't be having this conversation without that first contract and without that first shoe. So the airship is kind of, and I mean, since we're listening to this, like we know for the most part, what that story looks like, how the first half of the season or so was worn, played wearing the airship. But in retrospect, Jordan brand and pretty much every shoe outlet spins the band Jordan one. So the black and red, the bread, whatever you want to call it, as being, you know, the band shoe. But history will really tell you that the colorway was the band shoe. And well, the colorway was the thing that was banned. And the shoe of that colorway was the airship. Um, since, you know, photo quality and ex definitely TV quality wasn't so sharp back in 85, they could get away with having a very similar model, i.e. the airship with just a white outsole and black and red upper look very similar to the shoe they were trying to get on shelves and to what Michael Jordan would actually wear for the remainder of his rookie year. But the airship is kind of that, that, that tale that everybody kind of knows, but might not know, but those that do know might see that band marketing for the Jordan one and think that's wrong. Like that's, that's not the correct part of the story, but, um, it kind of plays into how Jordan and Nike 
were trying to play that initial hand that they could use the airship. It's kind of an interim shoe. Introduce people to MJ, him being with Nike brand, and then kind of just do the old switcheroo with the Air Jordan one. Yeah, and I think that that hammers home the idea of of Nike's marketing brilliance that they were thinking about this from the very beginning, right? They knew that that you know from the from the very beginning. I mean, I think I remember reading an article at some point along the line that said that Peter Moore, who designed the Air Jordan One. And just designed the the wings logo that's on the Air Jordan One that obviously has been kind of an iconic piece of you know sneaker history. Uh, he actually specifically talked about the color being the kind of stand way to stand out because most most players are just wearing you know stuff to match the uniform, which is primarily white shoes and a you know hit of whatever color the team wore. So you know thanks to the internet, you know like we can go back and say say that. The NBA sent a letter supposedly on February 25th of 1985 and to Mr. Rob Strasser, who is a vice president at Nike at the time. And it says, in accordance with our conversations, this will confirm and verify that the National Basketball Association's rules and procedures prohibited the wearing of certain red and black Nike basketball shoes by Chicago Bulls player Michael Jordan on or around October 18th, 1984. Now being, you know, Fast forward, we know that MJ wasn't wearing the Air Jordan 1 at that time. He hadn't laced it up until, you know, a few months after that, basically. And you see a lot of pictures of the airship. You see a lot of demand for it to be retroed. And I, and I think it has, a, a it has because of the size of sneakers, the story has become almost like folklore around the airship. It's just like you guys said, with this, this design is very very much a piece of all these Nike components, right? Even to the point where MJ played in shoes that shared, you know, dunk outsoles and midsoles, which were slightly different, but almost all the same, right? You're, you're looking at like air, a pretty, pretty hard rubberized outsole midsole combination and a leather upper. Like that's essentially the formula for all shoes in the eighties. And, you know, you could look at the Air Force One, the, the Airship, the Air Jordan One, all of those shoes back then, with the exception of, you know, maybe like the Chucks being canvas and being a little bit more low profile and a little bit looser. They all had the same kind of thing going on, basically. 100% the same thing going on. And as MJ gave that spice of life, you know, not so much on the court because he pretty much did play by the rules in terms of keeping it you know, white, black, and red Yeah, that happened to be Bulls colorways on the court. But off the court, he gave us every flavor imaginable stuff that was, you know, timeless, like the Royals and stuff that was kind of out there and we haven't seen in a very long time, like the Metallics, Lowe's, AJKOs. So just hitting it from all cylinders early and regularly. So now I wonder if the AJKO was just kind of a since he did like the the uh, Converse Chuck Taylor that was just like kind of a kind of an homage to you know the sneaker he liked because there's no real reason for that sneaker I don't as far as I know has he ever played in that shoe I, I don't recall him playing in the AJKO it just kind of showed up um, at the end of this at the end of his season wearing the uh, the Jordan one yeah I don't I don't remember seeing him ever or seeing pictures of him ever playing in the the KOs I know that he played in 
the in the Jordan one from basically what eighty four, like the end of eighty four, uh, or it is, it was seen towards the end of eighty four. So all of his rookie year, but he also played in it his second season, right? Because the second season was when he was in the playoffs with the Celtics and put up 63 and, and Larry Bird said he was, you know, what is it? God, Jesus on the, basketball yeah, God, and, God in yeah. basketball uniform or something. But cause he got hurt. Yeah. His rookie year. Yeah. Right. No, I want to say it's the beginning of his second year. Cause that playoff was not his rookie year. 1986. When he dropped 63 four, on 420, A, um, 1986, that he wouldn't have been a rookie. He would have been a sophomore in his second year. So he basically wore the Air Jordan 1 for essentially a season and a half. You know, first, say, first half of the season, he's in the ship. And then once the Air Jordan 1 kind of breaks out, I, I remember the, the photo shoot with Patrick Ewing um and mj where he's wearing their jordan one right and that's kind of like the 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 defining rookies photo for that season um but it's crazy to think that you know the the shoe didn't release until april of of 85 which means going back chronologically it's the tail end of his rookie season because the season starts in october in 84 April 85 is after the all-star break before the playoffs start. Yeah. So, so his, his like unveiling of that shoe really came around all-star weekend in 85, right? Like the full on, like everybody sees it. It's, it's everywhere. You know, the the ads are probably already out at that point. Like I, I don't remember seeing Jordan one ads. I remember seeing like Jordan three ads as a kid. That was kind of the first introduction for me, but um, you know, he, he finished second in the dunk contest that all-star weekend. And that's obviously where the photo shoot with Patrick Ewing came in too, because it's that typical, like all-star eighties, all-star photo, like the, the, the blue curtain backdrop and just, you know, everybody's <laughs> nice and tidied up for the photos. I'm just thinking because like every, you brought up there, Jordan three being the first real commercial you remember. Like the one the playoff tie. Yeah. Like, the power of the one came from on the court. That's where everybody wanted to be like Mike. I mean, I know that whole popular song, you know, the commercial came later, but mm-hmm. Michael was yeah. the marketing. That's what was so brilliant about Michael Jordan, the Jordan line as a whole. Like everybody wanted to be him and to be like him, you needed the shoes. True, but there was definitely there was definitely Air Jordan One commercials. So there was a commercial. The commercial that I remember, I mean, there's a there's a band commercial, but I don't I don't remember that one from a kid. But there's a there's a there's a commercial where he like looks like he's taking off and there's a sound of like a jetliner or something. And it was like, you know, the Air Jordan from Nike is now here or something or whatever. Like that was a commercial that I kind of. Uh, like at least vaguely remember it was all about on court because nobody was, you know, you didn't want to be like, you didn't want to be fashionable. You wanted to be like, you know, an athlete of some kind, right? Like you either wanted to be 
you know, a basketball player like MJ or Dr. J or, you know, Magic, Larry Bird, those guys, or I guess potentially going to the other important factor of the early years of the year, Jordan 1, skateboarding, right? In California, the Bones Brigade was everywhere. You like, you, you know, wanted to have like bleached long hair and, you know, pink everything and like, you know, just be this like total rebel of, against society. And guys like Steve Caballero and Tony Hawk and Lance Mountain all wore Jordan 1s back in the day to skate in. So that kind of made it, you know, equally like impressive on the other side of the culture that you were kind of growing up in, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the time, like I said, you mentioned, you, you thought the shoe made you jump higher, run faster, be a little stronger. I mean, because everybody who wore had, you know, they, like you say, they, they did something that you wanted to be able to do. Um, but yeah, definitely there's a huge marketing behind the Jordan one considering like, I mean, think about it, the, from the, the chance they took on them, they had to push the shoe. And and I don't know if we've mentioned it already. I don't remember hearing it, but back then the shoe was $65. Like, it's crazy. Like, I mean, that's a lot of money back in 84. You know, if we look back at it, but it's crazy to think of the huge difference and then the marketing behind it. I mean, Nike was so smart that with that commercial band commercial, they released it pretty much as soon as they got the letter from the NBA saying that Jordan couldn't wear that, you know, black and red shoe. And I don't want to go too far back to talking about the airship again, but the, what, what Robbie mentioned, they're using really uh, a smart move and putting that shoe in the same color blocking as what the Jordan one would be because it wasn't done yet. Um, they made everyone think it was that shoe and just putting that everyone wants to be, you know, a rebel and then wants to be Michael Jordan. That that sold it. Oh, I wanted to shoot at the NBA said that he couldn't wear it and I want to be Michael Jordan. And at that point, it's like that commercial just put you know fuel in the flames and there we go. Yeah, to to put that into perspective, like $65 for a shoe in 85. The other the only reason that shoes got to be that expensive prior to that was if they were essentially running shoes, right? Like in I want to say 82, the New Balance 990 was the first shoe to reach $100, like a mainstream public released sneaker. I'm sure there was other random stuff that was out there that was crazy, like boots and stuff like that. But as far as sneakers go, price point was kind of always um, the Jordan one was affordable, in my opinion, you know, like this stuff went on sale for pretty cheap. There's, you know, stories all over the internet. And, you know, you talk to anybody that's been around or was around in that time where they were buying shoes or their parents were buying shoes, you know, you could find, I mean, I've had original Jordans in my hand that had box stickers of $19.99. So these shoes definitely were popular, but there were so many of them, they were all over the place. It was just such a massive marketing campaign that that's how they ended up becoming like a, a kind of a legendary skate shoe in some regards, because if you were in, you know, into skateboarding California, or if you were in skateboarding in New York and like in, in the early eighties, it was just like a cheap, durable shoe and it looked dope. So it definitely set a tone for a sneaker world from the very get go, even though that part didn't really mature until 
you know, I would say years down the road, but it's pretty fascinating to look back and see all of that kind of stuff nowadays. Very true. I just like that. I saw during some reading that the, the resale, you know, they said a resale market back in the day and when the Jordans were um, during the first release, when they were selling out, the average resale price for a pair of Jordan ones was a hundred dollars. And I thought that was pretty, pretty funny that, you know, reselling has been happening for a good while now. And a hundred dollars was the price point back then, which again, really expensive for the time. I mean, I would love for someone to resell me something brand new for a hundred dollars right now. That'd be, be great. They've always been around. <laughs> I mean, I think too, the, the other thing that was going on back then is you didn't have this global market that we have today. So literally people, I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with Atmos in Tokyo and Atmos essentially was the first, yeah. you know, at least publicly recognized as the first kind of reseller in the sneaker world. They would basically buy, you know, all sorts of shoes from America and they kind of like set the tone for what I, I hate the term, but like what a tastemaker, what an influencer does, right? Because they brought all that culture from the United States and sold it in Japan. And eventually they, you know, work their way into like these big, huge partnerships and obviously have a long-term relationship with tons of the brands nowadays. There was a really good documentary, um, Russ did, and he kind of went over that where they just brought in, I mean, even stuff that like wasn't cool anymore, like those $20 Air Jordan 1s. You know, you go to the mom and pop shops and you ask, what, what do you have in the back from past years? Like, what can I buy cheap? And at that point, it was so readily available. Those shoes were laying around. You go and show them to a different market. And now what? Tokyo's the streetwear capital of the world. I would even say like sneaker capital of the world. They do it. They honor the past and they love to buy the new and they'll buy the top dollar. So like they, they cover every base and that all started with the Jordan one. And that kind of goes back to the Jordan one starting sneakers, like starting sneaker culture, sneaker heads. Like it was it. And it was because you could get it in any kind of style to fit your needs. Yeah. If you were a skater, you can get them cheap. If you wanted something like flashy for the weekend, you can get like a metallic orange or, you know, something kind of out there, metallic purple, but just the staying power is so prevalent now because of the infatuation has started back in 85. So, I mean, do we want to kind of go into the colorways of the original ones? Um, yeah. So I, before we do that, I wanted to mention because my time living in New York, I learned a lot about like the Air Force One and the culture around that particular shoe, which happened, you know, slightly before the Air Jordan one. But one of the stories that I remember most vividly is Bobito Garcia talking about how they would color their shoes to make them look different from the all white shoes. Right. And and I, I want to say he talks about like coloring his shoes burgundy at some point. And I, I don't remember if that was an in-person thing or if it was in, in one of the docu like one of the many documentaries he's done. But he's kind of one of those people that's like driven this culture for decades. Mm -hmm. And so that said, like kind of to set the tone for what colorways would become for the Jordan one, the Air Force One was really limited to the color choices that you had back then. You basically were buying all whites or white and gray or maybe like a white and navy or a white and black. And I think that was pretty much it. 
when you're talking about like 82, 83, there wasn't a whole lot of options. So now you've kind of got like the test market for colors, so to speak. You're seeing, you know, if Nike's paying attention to like New York City basketball culture, you're seeing guys that are playing in the streets in shoes they've customized to add a little bit of color to their shoes and to keep them, you know, fresh from everybody else. Because that's the thing is you wanted to, you wanted to be different back then. You wanted to stand out. That said, that takes us into kind of the Air Jordan 1 and the debatable number of colorways that actually released back then, which Robbie talked about. I mean, just us trying to get a grasp on the numbers before recording was a little shaky. But you have, you know, the five OGs, Chi Town, Chicago. Like, is there six OGs? Bread, black and red. Royal, black and blue. And you have the shadow, black and gray. And you have the black toe, which is very similar to the Chicago, just with a black toe. And the white and black. That's six base, uh, outside of the Royal, and I guess the Shadow, like base Chicago colorways. Like, I guess the more normal of the bunch, and they are systematically retroed every couple years since like 2001. Of course, they came out in 94, and we'll touch on that later, but since like the early 2000s, we've been seeing these colorways release every couple years because... That's just how cherished and loved they are. Um, so you have those like OG ones. Then you have the six metallic. Are we going, are we, are we going to confirm on six? Do we feel good with that number? Six may be the final number. Yeah, I think that's the final number. I think it's seven. So you have seven, isn't it? Oh, crap. Seven. <laughs> there are seven plus the neutral oh, gray, which is white and gray, like white and soft gray. But if you're going to go. Oh, okay. I know we're counting neutral gray. Yeah, I mean, no, that's just another another one. Um, but you have white and red metallic, white and maroon metallic, white and orange metallic, white and green metallic, white and blue metallic, white and purple metallic. And that's the six I have. What, what could be the seventh metallic? There were, there were two blues. There was a navy mm-hmm. and then there was a... Uh, like a metallic royal color. Metallic navy. Yep. Yeah. And then doubled up on two reds and two blues, basically. Pretty much. Dang. I mean, that's, I mean, what couldn't you hit a fit with if, if they would be using those terms? <laughs> um, like with all those options, like, <laughs> I mean, everything's covered. Like there, there's nothing that you could say in terms of, ah, oh, that doesn't fit what I'm, what I'm looking to go for. Like, you know, my shirt's this colorway or my jersey's that color. Like, no, like, Nike had you speechless. Yeah. I, wish I, had, yeah. <laughs> I need a time machine to go. If all these were 65 bucks, someone just give me $700 in the time machine to go back to 85. I would clean up. Right. And just watch them crumble slowly. Um, <laughs> watch them crumble completely. <laughs> I mean, that's what the, I mean, if they're not stored right, that's what happens. Um, but, so you had all those colorways. Then you had variants of the Jordan 1. So you had the AJKO, which is a canvas upper. And it's actually a Vandal tooling. Do you know that? Did you know that? Mm-hmm. 
It's not the Jordan yeah, one so yeah. either. Um, you had low tops, like I kind of just said, um, a grip of those. It's kind of hard to put a finger directly on that. But there was metallic lows. There was low renditions of, you know, like Chicago colorways. What are we missing there? That's pretty much every original. I think you hit it all. Did you say the Storm Blue? I think you did. You just named so many. That... Ah, and, and no, I did not. And the UNC yeah, blue. So homage to his alma mater. And this a random ass blue <laughs> colorway, which seemed pretty popular. We're going to document all of this on the website at sneakerhistory.com slash Air Jordan one. It'll just be like A-I-R-J-O-R-D-A-N and the number one. So you can check out all of this and we'll put a bunch of pictures of all these originals up there. And then we'll, you know, everything else that we cover in this episode. But I think the the few that were uh interesting to me were you know like that white natural gray or white neutral gray depending on who is talking about it um that colorway is just super clean and simple and even though now we have all these other crazy colorways i feel like that would have been like a pretty default colorway for anybody that was looking for a basketball sneaker in 1985 yeah it covered all like the team requirements (laughs) <laughs> and what's so crazy about the neutral gray is that it totally fits what trends are nowadays. And they still won't pull the trigger on it. It's like that thing would absolute murder. You can make that a super GR. Well, dude, I people don't, don't give a crap about. Yeah. Shoes will buy it. See, yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> if, they, if they just release it, I, that'd be super dope. It's just a GR. But I think after they released two of the metallics, uh, what back in 2016, 2017, and they sat for literally like a year on shelves. I think they're just, I don't know if they just don't want to pull a trigger or anything with that same color blocking, just, you know, just a color on the collar and a swoosh. But uh, I mean, I bought a pair of the, the navies when they came out. I think they're, they actually made them a pretty solid quality. And I think they'll probably do the same thing with this one. And heck, if it sits, it sits. I mean, but eventually someone's going to buy it. Don't just keep doing the same ones over and over again, even though we do love the, the originals, like the Shadows, the Royals, the Breads, Chicago, the Black Toes, yeah, we love those. But uh, man, I think if they start releasing some of these other ones, like I think we got one release of the Storm Blue a couple years back. Uh, we got the UNC a year or two ago. The the White and Blacks, we got an actual retro. Then we got that weird furry one last or this year actually. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential in these what 15 colors we named off, 16 colors that. I think a lot of people would appreciate if they were to come back. I mean, gray is an easier sell than orange and purple and even metallic red and blue. Like, inevitably, we'll get those. Um, So the whole idea of retroing a shoe wasn't a concept until the Air Jordan line. And the shoe that started the retro process, if you could guess it, would be the Air Jordan 1. So Michael was retiring and we see this all the time now, but you want to pay homage. You want you want to do something for your star on his way out. And if you really want to get that technical, I bet you Jordan kind of started that. Um, but they wanted to release the Shy Towns. I always just call them Shy Towns. The Chicago... Jordan one and the black and red Jordan one 
upon his first retirement in 1994. Um, actually, they released alongside the Black Cement and White Cement Air Jordan 3, but we won't go into that. Um, just the Jordan 1 kind of started that process. And now, what's that, 25 years later, we're seeing retro Jordan 1s on a monthly basis. What, what do you guys feel about that time? How do you feel about that time? I think it's funny, actually. Because from everything I saw, like that retro didn't work. They said that those things were being heavily discounted. They were putting back, you know, stock rooms for forever just to clear a room out for new shoes. That that initial retro, the one was they thought was a mistake and that it was being overshadowed by, you know, other other sneakers that were out. Um, but yet and still, it was a shoe that did start to retro craze. And even though it didn't quite work then, People are still clamoring, like real like collectors of old shoes are clamoring for those those ninety fours. But it's crazy how it, it it didn't have the same effect that it did, does now. Mm-hmm. And that was when Mike was the height of one of the, well, I would say the height of his powers, but he came back and won three more on him, so <laughs> he was still super relevant. So I think that's like an important thing to consider um, during that era, right? You know. He, it was such a shock for Michael Jordan to to walk away from basketball. As kids, you were still ridiculously crazed fan of this guy and his abilities and winning titles and all of that stuff. And it didn't matter where you were either. You know, like now we get to see so many games. You get to choose your team. You know, you see so many people that live in one city and are their favorite team is, you know, halfway across the country. And back then, until Michael Jordan came around, you didn't get to watch a lot of games other than Bulls games on WGN if you knew somebody that had cable or had cable. So it, it, it changed everything because you were getting to see all of the shoes along the way. And when the retro came out, I remember I, my first pair of Jordans is the Air Jordan 9. I remember, you know, getting those on sale I remember, I, I mean, I knew the Jordan 1 and, and the Jordan 3s were there, but I still wanted the newest, latest, and greatest Air Jordans at that time. So to me, there was still this kind of, you know, we weren't, we weren't trying to collect sneakers to that extent back then because most of us were lucky if we saved up enough or had, had you know, parents that could hook us up with, with those sneakers. So to me, that was the big deciding factor on those particular shoes. And I want to make sure to note that the Air Jordan 1, you know, by today's standards, if you look back at like 1984, 1985, 1986, the, the two year run that MJ was, you know, kind of promoting the shoe and, and doing a bunch of stuff and it was showing up everywhere. They sold, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of this shoe over the course of, you know, that time. And it still was discounted in a lot of places nowadays we we judge something based on if it sells out or not and that's not the case for most sneakers that's not the case for most brands that's only the case for the very like focused sneakerhead hypebeast community that is sitting on the sneakers app today in 94 when these retros came out even though they were getting discounted and you were you know like people were getting air jordan 3s for you know 65 70 bucks on clearance 
and you could get Air Jordan 1s for around 40 or 50 bucks, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Like there was still, they were still flooding the market with Air Jordans. That's something that kind of changed. And, and I think that looking ahead to the Jordan 1 retros that are coming down the pipeline, so to speak, in, in 1994, you didn't know it, but, the, but all of that was going to change because it was really like the early 2000s to late 2000s where Jordans became more mainstream and more hyped and you could definitely miss out on a release if you didn't get it when it came out. Probably old enough to remember this probably better than you guys, but um, do you guys remember like the first the first time like you saw a Jordan 1? Was it like the 94 retro or was it still like into the early 2000s? I was early 2000s. My first Jordan I got was a Jordan 10 and I was, was five. And I was a shadow, that was a, the, the shadow 10s and that was 94. So that would have been the same time. It would have been retro, but I don't remember them until like the early 2000s. That's crazy. That's my, that's actually like the first, the, well, the second pair that I got, but the one of the like first pairs that I got was a shadow 10. Love that shit. How about you, Robbie? Man. Short answer, no. Long answer, kinda. Um, <laughs> just the two thousand threes. Like, I mean, I, I know I saw them just because I was reading Slam. I was just like looking every time we go grocery shopping, I'd go right to the magazine aisle and I'd look for the Slams, and you'd always see shoes in there. So, early two thousands for sure. Like my third pair of Jordans ever were the patent leather. Columbia's so like I got my hands on a pair pretty early but um yeah I would have to say in magazines probably 2001 yeah right around there probably definitely 2001 final answer for you just. <laughs> so so one one quick note before we get to the 2001 releases because to me 2001 is like the very like this is like the the boom like this is like the gold rush on sneakers is 2001 but something interesting happened uh the air jordan one in march of 1998 preach <laughs> michael michael knew that it was going to be the last time that he was going to be playing in madison square garden in new york uh because you know he essentially is, is retiring right so instead of just wearing what would he been wearing the 14s at that time probably 13s or 14s at that time he decided to bring one of his original pairs of the chicago air jordan ones from 85 to wear his last his last time uh, at msg and he's quoted as saying it's been a long time since i wore them it's kind of fun to come back here and play and remember some of the old days and some of the games that i've had here the shoes are part of that. My feet are killing me, but it was fun. So MJ basically came into the league wearing a size 12 and a half. And over the course of time, his foot grew into a size 13 and a half as the years went on. And basically wearing a 12 and a half, he, like, he was wearing an original pair. So he's, he's putting on a size 12 and a half to play at MSG. He ended up scoring 42 points and grabbing like eight rebounds, six assists, you know, typical MJ numbers. But it was it was definitely a moment that I remember. I remember Ahmad Rashad talking about him on the broadcast. I remember the, the you know, intro of the 
you know, game focusing down on his shoes as he's, you know, in his warmups as the national anthem's playing. It was super surreal because you didn't, you knew, but you didn't know. And, um, but it was, it was super dope. I think, I mean, I remember even like the Knicks fans, you know, giving him, you know, pretty, pretty big uh, ovation as he checked out of the game, which should have been kind of his, uh, his, his last run. Farewell tour. Yeah, farewell tour. <laughs> Shout out to all those New Yorkers out there that have generational hate for Michael Jordan and won't wear Jordans. I mean, I always found, I always found that comical. Um, but legend goes, he wore a 12 and a half on one foot and a 13 on the other. Yeah. And I'll say he had all sorts of nonsense going on. 12 and a half on one, 13 on the other. Jeez. Well, and I always thought I was cool because I wore a size 13. So I was like, oh yeah, Michael's, I got the same size shoes as Michael's. Too bad I didn't grow to be, you know, six, six or whatever. But my true size is 12 and a half and I can fit a 13. So Mike, if you have anything out there laying around, <laughs> throw those, throw a little John Hancock on there and uh, feel free to throw, pass it this way. But, um, that was definitely a really cool moment though. That that's like one, obviously I've only watched it on NBA's greatest games on NBA TV, but they even showed that Ahmad Rashad pregame stuff when they showed the classic game, like normally they get right, right to business, but that was definitely a moment right there. Um, so we mentioned Michael Jordan's last performance at Madison square garden in New York against the Knicks where he put up 42 points uh, but I wanted to go back and, and touch on some of the other important performances that he had in the year Jordan won. So uh, I think we also mentioned the 63 points he had in Boston in the playoffs in 1986, which essentially is the, the most memorable for anybody that was uh, alive back then. That was like a, a huge deal. Larry Bird, after the game, said that he's quoted as saying, I think he's God disguised as Michael Jordan. And, you know, MJ putting up 63 points was obviously... Uh, an insane performance for someone in his second season. So we we also mentioned the 85 dunk contest, which was February of 85. This is one of the first times that everyone got to see the year Jordan won, but it was also kind of a, almost like a display of the shoes in a sense that it was completely different than being able to see them on the court, right? You got to see them in commercials. You got to see them in, you know, uh, maybe in some highlight reels or something, but the black and red Air Jordan one on his feet with the matching red and black of the Bulls jerseys, Michael with his gold chain was just like the defining point of cool back in the day. So that was definitely an important piece of the legacy. The last moment that I want to mention was this rumor of Isaiah Thomas freezing out Michael Jordan and telling all the all-stars to not pass him the ball and telling Magic Johnson to go directly at him as a as a essentially a rookie in the 85 all-star game basically michael jordan's all-star debut was was pretty lackluster he ended up with seven points shot two for nine from from the floor it was just you know not what we expect from michael jordan and i think he wanted to make a big a big you know display of who he was and how good he was so isaiah thomas having the other all-stars kind of you know, freeze him out, gang up against him, whatever, uh, was was definitely got under MJ's skin. A few days after the All-Star weekend, the Bulls were playing the Pistons in Chicago. 
and Michael was wearing the Chicago ones for this. And, uh, you know, if you know anything about the, the rivalry between the Chicago and the Pistons back then, you know, the Detroit bad boys and, and the Bulls were some of the funnest games to watch because the Pistons were relentless and ruthless against MJ. So this game happened February 12th of 85, and Michael lit up the Pistons for 49 points. And basically, uh, you know, the lore of the story is that that MJ was so upset about the All-Star game performance and the way that he was treated by the rest of the All-Stars that he basically took it out on Isaiah and the Pistons because Isaiah was the one that, you know, although he denies it, was the one that basically told everybody to freeze out Jordan and uh, the rest, I guess, is history. So, so kind of like what we were saying, 2001 is, is when the gold rush hits, right? That's when stuff really starts flourishing and Jordan colorways are starting to become new and fresh and trying different ideas and kind of opening the gates for what was very sacred. And they didn't really stray from the original, hence why the OG retros are of original colorways. But then we started getting stuff from other countries collaborations, new colorways, new cuts, um, new embellishments on the shoe. So that's kind of when everything opened up and pretty much started, Jordan Brandon started trying new things. It became its own entity, um, separate from Nike, but still, you know, part of Nike. But what, what were your summer memories? I just don't want to run down through all of the colorways there's so many of them but what are your guys' thoughts on that time i personally think of the japan pack and how the first collaboration was technically with a country not a person i think that's that's kind of cool um what what are your thoughts i mean at that time at that time it was really one that that time period when i was really just really just kind of noticing and getting into sneakers and kind of just kind of figuring out the things I liked and, you know, didn't like and or didn't like, didn't like, God, I can't speak English right now. Um, but definitely like Robbie mentioned, like the Navy and white Japans were definitely a, uh, one of the ones I liked the most. I mean, is S even something they've used today and, and the SB collaboration that, that they made a low cut version of that was based off that particular pair. Um, then you also had that same that same time. Um, I guess we're looking at early two thousands. One pair I had from a, I got it from an outlet because it sat for a while. But it's the I don't know if you guys remember the Premier Pack. Which one's that? And um, the Premier, it was like there was supposedly like a uh, like a nicer quality, like it had suede's on them, uh, maybe a little softer leather. Uh, they had a few of them. They had the, um, let's see. Oh, they had the, they had the black with like the gold stars and the suede on the, in the, uh, in the panels. They had the all red, looked like a Gucci yeah. color that they would call it now. It was all red with a, a forest green, uh, suede interior. And that's the pair I had found sitting in an outlet for, I think, man, like, I think like 40 bucks. And that was, that was when I was really, really started collecting. And at that point, I'm like, well, I don't have a ton of money, but I'm going to go search the world and go like find find things that I like. And that was a pair I had there. And uh, 
there, there were a couple different ones like that, but it was it was okay. I say I have to have a sentimental spot for that time period because that's when I really started collecting. So even though when I look back at the colorways, there was nothing I would probably make a repeat purchase on, except for probably the, the black and white from the countdown pack, and then like I say, the navy. Well, basically all of Japan pack, but yeah, it's just more sentimental to me than anything else because that's like I said, that's when I really got into like my, my groove of collecting, finding things I really liked. For me, the Japan pack was super dope. I always wanted the 2001 Royals. I never ended up getting them. Um, I don't know why I just, you know, life happens and, and you move on from things and next thing you know, everything gets retro. But um, at that time, like I was super into the Royals and I really wanted a pair. I just for some reason didn't get them i love the the like the silver japans the even like you know moving a couple years forward to like 2003 i picked up the patent one patent uh mids or whatever but i guess throwing it back to you robbie 2001 obviously japan this kind of like you know you've got Jordan hysteria basically globally, right? This kind of proves it in the fact that Nike's releasing exclusive Jordans in Japan. You know, even though MJ is retired, well, you know, and and come back, I guess. But um now like fast forward a couple of years, 2003, and now there's this uh I don't know, I don't remember it ever be call, being called a mid, but I know that they were mids. The Jordan logo, the Nike Air logo goes away. The Jumpman gets put on the tongue. The Jumpman gets put on the heel. And we're kind of in a whole different world when it comes to, like, the purest Air Jordan 1 fans. Yeah, the snubby time. Um, snobby time. Uh, snobby time. It, it's funny because you're right. They don't call it a mid, but it's obvious. It's like a three-fourths, right? It's, it's not a true mid in the sense of mids we see now. It's it's like a true three fourths. It's not exactly where it was, especially compared to the OGs. But just trying something different. I mean, it, I think it comes back to Jordan Brand becoming its own division and wanting to really push that logo and let everybody know that yeah, these are Jordans. They have the Nike check on the side, but these are really like these are Air Jordans. People cop these. Um, and it, and it does that when you walk away from people, they see the jump man on the back of your heels. It's like instant, it's instant recognition. And I think that's what helped push. Obviously it was a huge logo before then, but having the jump man branding in additional places really hammers home. The fact for the most casual of passerby or somebody that knows nothing about basketball. Oh, but Michael Jordan, I get that. Those are cool. Um, they can they can connect with them in that sense. But um, a really big thing we saw a lot of is the jeweled swoosh, kind of like we saw tested on the Air Force One, comes back from time to time, but really kind of in the same vein, it's like the Jordan 13, like not so much the hologram, but just having that kind of that flashier detail on the side, again, bringing attention and extra eyes to the Air Jordan above the wing logo. So that's like my least favorite time. I always think of J. Cole wearing Air Jordan 1s with the Jumpman on the back. It's like, dude, you got money. Go, 
go buy some 2000 i mean because i mean that was at a time before all-star 2013 where we hadn't seen og construction on an air jordan one in you know 13 12 years no 12 years at that point so we had over a decade of all these variants of jordan ones um but never to the original high cut so it was a perplexing time i know a lot of people aren't as judgmental towards the jump man on the back as i am but ju- that's just because i feel like the original shape is like the most iconic silhouette there's ever been and and it's when you change it it changes it a lot for me but and the last kind of episode and our last episode where we went in depth with one shoe you guys were pretty okay with mids and different cuts of jordans more than i am there's one jordan we didn't mention when we were talking about it, and that's the uh i know we don't want to get too far into the uh the different uh offshoots but that time period i definitely owned a pair of the, uh alpha ones to play basketball in well that and that one's interesting because the alpha one was kind of the first performance oriented retro right or pro tro as we know them now mm-hmm. and a shoe that yeah you know like what Dwayne wade played in uh Mm-hmm. Did, did I know there was a Tinker version? Mike and Robbie. Who's that? Mike and Robbie. Mike and Robbie played in them. That's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you didn't uh, know. <laughs> well, so one of the things about like that that like era of like before, you know, before they go on like kind of this high high top hiatus, so to speak. Um, the the two thousand one Japan pack came in like a briefcase and had you know, a Jumpman like keychain that was, you know, something that I had never seen before. Maybe, maybe they did come on the, on the, the, on the, sorry, on the Royal ones from 2001, but mm-hmm. I only remember them really being on the silver Japan pack in that, that big old like briefcase packaging. Cause it was, it was like, you know, in a plastic bag that came with a shoe or something had like keys to the, keys to the suitcase or keys to the briefcase and the hang tag jump man logo chromed out to me that was pretty crazy because you just you just had never seen really anything like that you know if you got anything with the jordan before that it it was specific to the performance aspect of it right you know you had the 17s um you had like the the extra pods of the 22 the insoles and stuff like that but on retro stuff this was the first time like like you said they were really embellishing the shoe trying different materials different packaging just different ways that they could add a few extra bucks to the price but also one thing that i think really kind of stood out to me during that era was that you saw that they were limited to 2001 pairs right like it was on the tongue if i remember correctly wasn't it on the innards, yep, on the inner of the tongue. Which, you know, you can kind of see they're setting the ground for the the whole, like, hype of everything. And at this time, too, Nike is leaking things onto Nike Talk. You know, Nike Talk's a couple of years old. The ISS forums are there. Back in the day, you know, you didn't have blogs talking about sneakers. You had forums where people are talking about, kind of like Reddit, basically, nowadays, where people are just nerding out about the things that they love. So if you were into cars or cooking or sneakers, 
that's where you were getting most of your information. If you were sharing, if you were, you know, somebody that's was kind of, uh, you know, a regular user of the internet at that time, because you didn't have any kind of social media, you know, you might've had MySpace or something, but that really didn't, that didn't really pop off in the sneakerhead world the way um, some of the other social media platforms have throughout the years. I guess like kind of jumping ahead a little bit. So 2003, you've got like mid cut patent leather, weird things going on with the wings logos. There's just a lot of, a lot of uh, experimentation for Jordan brand. And one of what I would say the most influential experiments of all time happened in 2007 with the old love, new love pack, where you're basically getting two pairs of shoes in one pack. I mean, it just kind of, this is after, you know, the DMP, the DMP pack, the defining moment moments pack with the Jordan 11 and the Jordan six, but two Air Jordan ones in one pack was a crazy thing to see. I was just saying that one of those times is like, they typically weren't straying too far away from the, the normal colors at that point, you know, before 2007, but they took a chance, like, like, like you said, Nick, they took a chance, not only just releasing two in a pack, but giving you a color that hadn't literally that had never been really seen. Like there had never been a yellow and black Air Jordan one. And now it's looked on upon super fondly among all collectors. And it's something they kind of retro this past year in a, in a, in a mid version. And as ex- as expected, I mean, because of the nostalgia with that colorway, it's actually sold out. Yeah, I kind of the second that sentiment. I love the new love, old love. I'm a hypocrite, but that's a really good looking pack. <laughs> Was the the new love or sorry, the the old love. Uh, I want to say is the first. Air Jordan one that had a kind of semi translucent outsole, right? I can't think of anything before that. Yeah, I think it is. Mundo. Which is pretty crazy because you nobody had really seen that. You'd seen it on other Air Jordan models, but back in this time, there wasn't all this like crossover stuff. There wasn't a lot of trying to, you know, combine an Air Jordan six with an Air Jordan one with a dunk like you're seeing nowadays. So seeing these types of little things as somebody that's paying attention to it definitely piques your interest in a lot of ways and you kind of like connected to people around that stuff like through the forums and stuff like that so but i think right around 2007 is kind of this like crazy turning point for basically the entire footwear business because sneaker blogs essentially become a very very popular thing so Sites like Nice Kicks, Kicks on Fire, Freshness Mag, Sneaker News, you know, Hype Beast, High Snobiety, all these sites kind of pop off within this like one to three year period around 2006 to 2009. And now everyone is looking at sneakers content all the time. So you don't really have like, you know, a crazy amount going on, you know, like there's places like Flickr, there's places like Facebook where you might connect with people around sneakers or you might become friends with people on those platforms and see sneaker related stuff, but it's not a very focused group type thing. And sneaker blogs kind of like elevate things to a completely different level. So 
I guess like the next kind of progression in that would be let's see what what is there 2008 2009 ish you're talking about the uh the countdown packs right so the countdown pack essentially was like a way for jordan to go back and revisit every one of the shoes they released two shoes in a pack you know the numbers added up to 23 so you got the air jordan one in a black and white which had never been retro before it was an original color. I think it was a mid, right? I don't recall 100%, but it came with the Air Jordan 22. It was kind of a high. I thought it was a, I thought it was a high. I, th- I thought it was a high. I think it's one of those. It's like as high as they wanted it to be at that point. It's one of those three-fourths type deal. Do you remember who you're on the tongue? No. I want to say no. No, it didn't. It had, it had the jump man on it. Yeah, you're right. Jump, jump man. Okay, so it it wasn't important enough for Robbie to remember. That's what we can take out of that. <laughs> but what you can take away from that same year is the first Jordan collab on the Air Jordan 1. And it was the Levi's from 2008. Came with the elephant print denim. And most importantly, some ugly-ass pants and a t-shirt. Like, it came with the whole outfit. You could be stunning with your big baggy ass pants and your Jordan ones <laughs> and looking fresh from head to toe. Like you had the old love, new love a couple years before and you had the countdown pack, which who would have ever thought one plus 22 would end up being a good idea. It was, um, is adding up to 23 and you also had collabs starting to drop. So the Jordan one was starting to really push the boundaries on what it had been kind of explore new territory you know i got to see those uh those air jordan one levi's in person it's definitely more of a uh a piece for the room as opposed to something you should actually wear your feet i'm not a not a huge fan of that one but it's definitely it's, you know it's a piece of history so it's still cool i can't remember how limited oh no it was it was 501 right they did they did it with levi's 501 so there was 501 pairs of mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so that was the pairs that they were selling like foot action, the 501s, so you can like fit over over the top of your sneakers before people were trying to show off their shoes. They're trying to cover the tops of them. <laughs> Shout out to uh, hashtag NT Denim. That, that was definitely me. <laughs> that still is me, really. I don't. I don't. I don't think <laughs> it, it was me. I'm on where I'm saying. I mean, we all had our Jinko jeans back in the days. Like, oh, are you even wearing shoes in there? You'll never know. Come on, my pants are cutting yeah. them. But yeah, it, it is an interesting time because, like, as Robbie said, opening up the kind of, I don't know, like, now I look at it as just like chaos and pandemonium when it comes to retros that are in collabs and all the like limited colorways and stuff. But to me, the, the Levi's one was super dope. I probably don't um, need to bring attention to it. But at that time, I was like, still like heavily working on cars and I had essentially built out like my Integra interior in elephant print. So, you know, nice. uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'm not mad it, at that at all. It, wow. It was like 2006 or something, I think. So the seeing the elephant print on the Jordan like that was super dope to me. I, I don't know that I would wear them cause I'm not really a fan of the colors together, but, I thought that the idea of a collab with a big company, Levi's is from San Francisco, so I'm especially like emotionally tied to them for some reason. 
but it was just kind of a dope thing to see. It wasn't too much longer before I think like maybe the end of that year where the first Dornbecker stuff happened, right? Yep. So you had one. The first Dornbecker. Oh, wait, yeah. November 2008. Yeah. And, and that turned into a whole thing, obviously, now in hindsight. But the Jordan 1 to me was all those shoes as the Dornbecker releases was such a great idea because it was a way to bring money and attention to kind of the good things that Nike is involved in that doesn't necessarily always get the publicity that the negative stuff happens. So, and I thought it was cool that they let the kids do the design on that shoe. And I, I still think like, I, I mean, I'm not like a super fan of like the patent finish on any of the Jordans, obviously, but that particular shoe is super special in my opinion. Definitely one of my favorite kind of collaborations. The Jordan one Dornbecker raised $600,000, no contributed towards $600,000 that year going towards Dornbecker Children's Hospital. Yeah, that's super dope. So, and a big part of it, um, it was designed by um, Tony Taylor was the name of the patient. Um, super cool stuff. I mean, now DPs or Dornbeckers are kind of the most, you know, everybody's excited for them every year. Like we all want to see what happens. It's Dornbecker season coming up, I believe. We normally get them in November. So we should be seeing this year's run. I haven't heard anything about them yet. No, they normally stay pretty tight-lipped for a bit. But without the Jordan 1, I mean, there had been other Dornbeckers, but that, you know, showed that they can work on the Jordan silhouettes. And they could be anything. Like, that shoe doesn't make any sense. And that's most of the fun about it is the fact that it's childish, it's inventive, it's creative, and it's not like anything we'd seen before. Um, you know, just a couple months later, we got the Tribe Call Quest Air Jordan 1. So, like, Jordan brand was thinking, all right, we can do it for the kids, we can do it with brands, and we can do it with musicians. We can do it with groups. You know, pretty much anything could work with a Jordan 1. And they just threw kind of the the Midnight Marauder, I mean, the low-end theory print across it and threw a strap on it. And it worked at the time. That was a really hot shoe back then. <laughs> Keyword back then. Like, time, <laughs> times change. But they were just trying everything. You know, going back to kind of like the charity type stuff, you know, a couple of years later, I was actually working for Soul Collector Magazine at the time. and. Dave White basically partnered with Jordan Brand to create, I guess like the first one was through eBay, but the second one, I want to say, was through Soul Collector. And that first one, the first Dave White collaboration. So Dave White is a artist from the UK. He'd done a number of shoes, Air Max One, uh, Air Stab, and a few others at that time. But the Jordan One that he did didn't have the didn't have the swoosh on the side, right? Which was kind of bananas. No, it, it had a swoosh on it. It was a, it, it was a white swoosh. Cause you talking about the one with the American flag on it? That well, American-ish flag? So, yeah. So the, the first one, yeah, the first one, I'm, I'm mixing them up. The first one was like the American flag, the gold toe, swoosh on the side, wings for the future. That was released mm -hmm. through Soul Collector. Yeah, yeah. The second one was the... 
kind of elephant print, uh, black, white, and red, no swoosh on the side. And that was released through a charity auction through eBay. Ah, okay. And okay. I think that one's 2012, right? So I'm, I might be mixing them up, but the Jordan, the, the first one was 2011. The second one was 2012. But I, I, I just thought it was cool because it was, it was the first time artists got to do whatever they wanted on the Jordan 1 as, as a collaboration. So. Yeah, and they, he did another, there was another version of the Wings for a Future. I think it had, instead of gold on the toe, it was the black. Uh, and that was more the general release that they, you know, it was one of the tier zero releases that uh, Nike had. And I just have a, a bad memory of that because uh finish line to restock on the shoe, uh, like one random night. Uh, I, I got all the way to the checkout, checked out on credit card. 20 minutes later, my order got canceled. Bummer. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of sucks, but I mean, so it's, it's a really cool shoe, though. Like, like I said, that's definitely one of the ones, probably the first one I remember that just someone got to take out their liberty with the shoe and just do whatever they wanted. I mean, I guess to a degree, without uh, without having to stay in any kind of parameters, look like. So the gold pair, there were twenty three pairs available. I don't know if you said that, Nick, but there were um, twenty three of the gold toes, and then. Like Mike was saying, the black ones were limited, but there were restocks and stuff like that. Um, that's one of my favorite designs of a shoe, period. That's so cool. Like no other, like you see splatter print, but it's not like that. It's a really, really creative look. And he's a British artist. If you aren't too familiar with who Dave White is, I had to look him up a couple of weeks ago. But um, definitely one of the one of the cooler collabs. Um, then you had stuff kind of coming full circle back to the skateboard roots. Nick was talking about earlier back in the mid eighties, you started getting stuff like the, uh, the Craig, Stijek, the Lance mountains, you know, stuff like that, where mm -hmm. not only was Jordan brand using the Jordan one to work with new people, but, bringing it back to their roots at the same time and acknowledging that the shoe was important to more people than just basketball players. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that them acknowledging that is super important for kind of, especially as, as uh, Nike being a, a SB, you know, being such an important part of skateboarding. But Mike, I, I was going to ask you, like you mentioned uh, before, the kind of hype starting with this next collab, the fragment Jordan one from 2014. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, just more, just doing research and just kind of trying to figure out when the, when, when the hype started with the Jordan one in the sense of everyone remembers when the Jordan 11 was a sneaker people were lining up for starting fights for so on and so forth, just kind of the hysteria around the releases. But it seemed like, from a lot of things I was reading, a lot of different, you know, articles, different pieces that, you know, different sneaker outlets, sneaker collectors put up. It seemed to pinpoint the that transition from the hyped up shoe being 11 to the one around that 2014 or in the 2014 time period when uh, the fragment uh, was, was released. And that was, I mean, of course, everyone know uh, as a Hiroshi Fujiwara, uh, that was his rendition of the Jordan one, very clean. Uh, it, it took place the Chicago colorway, or I'm sorry, the black toe 
colorway and replaced the red with the uh, royal blue and had the debossed uh, fragment logo uh, on the heel. And I mean, it seemed like it was all history from there. And it's just one of those those deals. It seems like that sneaker, like I say, it may not be that one exactly, but maybe just this the story nature of that particular collaboration seemed to be the thing that kind of possibly um, changed the way people perceived the Jordan one. But we were talking before uh, we started recording. And I think that same time also happened to be not the birth of social media, but more of the, the explosion of it where everyone on social media, you know, started, you know, needing to, you know, had to have a, you know, have to have the, the nicest, the newest shoe. And at that point, Jordan ones were probably the most readily available and, combination between the hype of the fragment one and then the need to be seen on social media, I think it kind of, um, you know, birth, what is now the Jordan one being the most seen and most worn sneaker, um, that, that our eyes are put on. I feel like personally, I feel like the Dave white shoes were kind of the popping off of that because the other Jordans at that time were reselling quite it and those were limited, but it was also because I was super close to the whole, you know, kind of launch of it. So I don't know, Robbie, do you, do you think the fragment one was the one that really like kind of set this whole like secondary market off into its own world? I mean, it was a key player in it. I think the Yeezys kind of did that more in the LeBron line, but that's a different conversation. It, it, it brought the Jordan I guess the Jordan line into that forefront. I mean, there's always been highly coveted, especially back in 2014, like the 2001 retros were like going for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. They were really sought after, but the fragment did something that we see a lot now where it just tweaks what we already know as original. So it's, it's basically a Chicago colorway just done with blue and with the fragment you know, stamp on the back heel. That, that's really all it is. But we had always kind of, you know, we see Photoshop renderings and all these different mock-ups of shoes, but like we never had seen white and blue and black like that on a Jordan 1. And it's so simple just seeing, even just saying that there was excitement over white, black, and blue, like that within itself is an anomaly. But when you add the hype of one of the biggest sportwear, I mean, not sportwear, streetwear brands in the world with the biggest footwear brand in the world and execute it at that level with the materials and the color blocking, it's just, it was one of those rare, perfect shoes. It came at the right time. Jordans as a whole were really popping off. Like Jordans were not sitting in retail stores at all. And it gave collectors something really rare in a place where we were seeing retros drop every week. So you had something really limited, done really well, and it felt familiar. Those three elements are what made it what it is. And it's now a multi-thousand dollar shoe because the past three years, for example, we've been trying to replicate that same kind of principle. Let's just take original colorways, color blockings, and mix it up with new colors. But the fragment just did it better and first. So I think that's why it's so special. It, it definitely opened up the opportunities for other people to do kind of different things with it, right? Over the next like three years, as you said, it kind of, it, you know, you have 
women specific models where Alayli May is doing the starter jacket, Raider starter jacket inspired thing for Los Angeles. You have, um, you know, the off white Jordan one obviously is kind of like the, the shoe that's on the map everywhere. Everybody wants it. You got union Gatorade. I mean, the list goes on, right? You kind of open up into this crazy world of Jordan ones being everywhere, but for you guys, what are, let's say your top three favorite Jordan one colorways? My top three favorite are going to be pretty, pretty simple. They kind of, they hang around those, those original pairs and that's going to, two of them are at least. And, uh, it's going to be the shadow one. It's one of my favorites. Um, the Royal one. And then one kind of off the beaten path. It's going to be actually be the uh, one I've never had, but it kind of falls in the same category, I guess, of like the Royal as well. But it's the Lance Mountain um, SB collaboration. I think those would probably be my, my top three favorites. How about you, Robbie? Dylon, Dylon, and Dylon. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I'm a traditionalist, as it's probably been not so eloquently stated. Top five shoes time period are the air Jordan one royals so that's easily on the list i love royals um then i would have to say man chicago's i love shy towns a lot that's the quintessential perfect shoe um and then one i just bought today the top threes i really like how it plays with what i was saying with the fragments and how it's familiar, but it's new. The top three, you know, put bread, Shy Town, and Royal all together and made it look fresh and different from every angle. And I think that's a really cool effect. So pretty much all OG colorways when you think about it. For me, it's probably Royals. That's that's my favorite of the original colorways, I think. Shatter, the original Shattered Backboards are one of my favorite shoes of all time. Just kind of like my favorite colors in a great material on a perfect silhouette. Uh, and then I'm probably I'm probably with Mike. I really love the, the Lance Mountain Nike SB collaboration. I didn't get them, but it's definitely on my list of like shoes that I would like to hunt down at some point. So, all right. So before we get out of here, last question. Could you see the Air Jordan 1 ever like falling off from where it's at right now? Or is it just such an important piece of sneaker history that it will always be on the shelf rotating with, you know, new colors and, and always be available in some form for consumers? I think eventually we'll see a little dip. But with that being said, I don't see it going away. It's become too much of a staple in the sneaker culture and just kind of the, um, I feel like just, any kind of like media culture, just culture in general, like the, the shoes become a staple in everything. Um, like everyone from sneakerheads to just someone just proud, you know, a normal person in the streets wearing Jordan ones and is very recognizable sneaker. Um, this is too much going on with it for it to ever disappear completely. I feel like, so I think we might see a, a, a lull somewhere, like a, a little, little drop in the, in the wave, but I think they're always going to be there. Um, waiting to go you know wait for the next crazy thing next crazy collaboration next crazy colorway to come out and to, to bring them back into the forefront if it ever does drop i'm 
in a similar boat. I think it'll bounce. It'll bounce around a little bit. I mean, every couple of years, there's a focus on a different Jordan. So we're just seeing Jordan one a lot, but the one will always be around. Like you can get it in so many different styles at so many different price points with rarity and affordability, both in play. I think that'll keep collectors and casual fans coming until we're just co- cockroaches on the earth. Like they'll it, never really go away. <laughs> How do I follow that up? So I think, I think we'll, <laughs> if we do see it fall off, it won't be in like a numbers <laughs> game type thing. It will be in like a reeling in the colorways, tuning it, toning it down a little bit for like the general consumer. And, you know, it just, it just becomes something like an Adidas Stan Smith or a, you know, Adidas Superstar or, you know, those shoes that are just an Air Force One, those shoes that are just always available everywhere. And you'll see just like the standard all blacks, all whites, you know, Navy hits, black hits. But I think we're years off before that happens. And I think the the collaborations and stuff that we're, where we're at now with collaborations on the Jordan 1 is pretty close to peak Jordan 1. Uh, I don't know what the best word to, to describe that is, but like Drink. We're, we're pretty close. Yeah, we're pretty close to the like, you know, to the limit of what everyone is willing to handle and if everybody continue if you continue to have so many collaborations i think eventually it it kind of just becomes less special for everything else and you'll see them reel that back in because this shoe to jordan brand even what is it 35 years later is incredibly important to both nike and jordan brand so they're not going to be willing to risk losing its inherent value in that sense. So we wanted to include some, I guess, hot takes from our followers on Twitter and some of the people that we know and love within the sneaker community. So that said, here's a handful of quotes. Shock Slade at Cousteau said, the Air Jordan 1 from its first launch has informed and influenced the direction of the sneaker world by bridging the gap between fashion and function, art and style, as well as culture and commerce. Brandon Edler at Mr. Brando three says we're creeping up on 35 years since the Jordan one was introduced and it's still the most wearable silhouette. I hope I'm 65 rocking bands in the face of a fellow kids meme someday worth it. Russ Bankston at Russ Bankston on Twitter says, I think it was as much about the world the Air Jordan 1 was introduced into as much as it was the Air Jordan 1 itself. The shoe redefined what a signature shoe could be. And while other shoes since have made their own impacts, they've done it in the world the Jordan 1 created. It's the same as looking for the next Jordan in basketball. You can't be the new version of something that came first. Mike, right, So, friend of the pod, uh, Mr. Unloved Wand, you guys can find him on... Uh... Instagram and Twitter, clearly from his name, you see he deals with a lot of Jordan 1s. It's kind of his specialty. His, his passion comes from Jordan 1s, and they will reach out to him and get a couple of quotes from him. Um, 
one thing I asked him was why, you know, why do you think the Air Jordan 1 has gained such a certain uh, sudden surge in popularity, you know, within recent years and something we just talked about? And his response was that, you know, it seemed like it was mainly the collabs and resellers value of select pairs. So just some of those really hyped items that got people, you know, got them put onto the shoe. Then kind of following up with that, I just asked him, you know, what does the Air Jordan 1 mean to him? And his response was love and simplicity. You know, the Air Jordan 1 is like a gateway drug to sneakers, which I, I think it could possibly be a true statement because it's one of the ones, again, is very readily available in different cuts and colors and, and sizes and definitely a entry level sneaker that can get you to some, some, some crazy, some crazy nice things. His all time favorite was the Chicago. And then something he'd like to see in the, uh, in the future with the Air Jordan one is uh, just to finish releasing all of the 85, 86 colorways. So, you know, like I said, that first 15, 16 colorways that we named off is something you'd like to see completed. I'm with that. Definitely. Yeah, man. Robbie, you want to, you want to um, fill us in with some of the folks on Twitter that had responded? Yeah. So air mag at, I should look to it this way at air mag nose says that air Jordan mids are just as dope as air Jordan highs. Um, agree to disagree, but <laughs> Good insight. I mean, I'm in the minority in this conversation. Um, Anthony Pompey um, chimed in on that saying, especially for people with shorter legs. So, oh. good, right? I, I'm not thought of it that way. Um, Dennis Kim said that they're not very comfortable since 1985. I add a lunar or zoom cushion on all the pairs I own or all of my pairs all the time is what he directly said. And that's a good tip. Um, Jordan ones are not comfortable. I wear them probably more than any other shoe and I drop my own insoles in there. That's, that's a pro move that Dennis and I both share. Um, and let's see here uh, at Conway West. So not Kanye, but Conway West. Um, they're saying the most overhyped shoe of the last three years Comfort are five out of 10 at best. And for that, I, I also, you know, cannot argue with you. That's pretty, pretty on point. Um, and, and those are the four responses we got in the short amount of time already. So thank you everybody for playing. Please come back again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, so one of the other comments that I saw was uh, uh, in regards to the mid. Uh, so this is CJ Fogler at CJ Zero. And he said some of the recent colorways have been fantastic if they would just turn up, turn the materials up a notch or three. I would, I would 100% agree. I think the mid kind of get shafted in terms of materials. And I think that's where, you know, like people just kind of forget about them because, you, you know, why bother if the quality's not there? So um, agreed. But so that said, I mean, we just want to thank all of you for rocking with us and listening to this special history lesson on the Air Jordan 1. You can follow us at Sneaker History on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all those platforms. If you are interested in more content, exclusive content, you can find us at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash sneaker history. We drop additional podcast episodes, content, sometimes some free product, well, regularly some free product. So check us out over there. Um, individually, you can find us uh, 
at Nick Engvall, N-I-C-K-E-N-G-V-A-L-L. Guys, how can they find you? Yep, you guys can find me, uh, Sneaker History, of course, but also on Instagram and Twitter at MadWatcher789. Robbie, where can they find you, sir? You can find me at R-A-H-B-E-E-702. Playing with my cat. That's it. (laughs) Right on. Well, uh, we appreciate you, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Peace. See you. Bye. What up, y'all? This is Nick again. Before you take off, I want to thank you again for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. To make sure you stay up on sneaker history happenings, new merch, new episodes, and other news, Sign up for our newsletter at sneakerhistory.com. If you're looking for more episodes to listen to, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com sneakerhistory for even more content. And as we do, be sure to tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far that will go for somebody. As always, we appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.